Well, good morning. Everybody fresh and ready and bright-eyed and bushy-tailed this morning. You got that extra hour of sleep last night. Most of you probably thought it was an extra hour to stay up, so you're still as tired today as you were any other Sunday this past summer. But uh, it's good to see you this morning on a wonderful and beautiful Sunday morning, and the sun is shining, and the leaves are colorful and falling. The other evening, I went home, and was it Thursday, Friday, one of the days this week, and I went home, and I was mowed up the leaves and blew the leaves and cleared the yard off and thought, man, this is going to be awesome. I got all this done before the rain comes. And it wasn't an hour after dark. It was like I'd not even touched the yard again. The wind started blowing, the leaves started falling, and it was covered. And so I just said, forget it. I'll do it when all the leaves are off. And that's exactly what I'm going to do, even though I do enjoy it. I want to invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians in the New Testament, right after Colossians and right before 2 Thessalonians. It's supposed to be a preacher joke. Went over like a lead balloon. <clears throat> I don't know which page. Before, you, uh, before we get started, as you're finding your place, let me just kind of update you uh, on a few things. Cameron Drake and his mom, Kimberly Drake, last Monday had uh, their procedures. Cameron was getting a kidney from his mother, and so that those surgeries were taking place or took place on Monday and everything went well. The both of them are home and recovering and, and doing really, really good from what I hear. And uh, so we're excited about that. Continue to pray for them. And then yesterday morning, Shirley Epps, which is Vicki Duffer's mother, uh, passed away from complications that she had. And she had surgery earlier this week. But we want to pray for uh, her family, Vicki and her sister, Sarah, and, uh, and Mark as well. Mark and Vicki are traveling. They're on vacation. And so they'll be coming back in, a, in a s- several days, and so they're on a ship somewhere in the, in the Atlantic Ocean, I think. I think that's where they are, but uh, I'm going to pray for that family uh, in this time of passing for them. And then next Sunday is uh, what we're going to be calling Celebration Sunday. It's not going to be the whole service. We've got a lot of things that we're going to do next Sunday with Veterans Day and things like that. But uh, we're going to call it Celebration Sunday because next Sunday I'm going to unveil the total pledges that have been committed to New Day and the campaign that we are in. And so some of you came this morning wanting to hear that number. Well, I'm here to disappoint you, and I apologize for that. We're not going to unveil it until next Sunday, and we're going we're to celebrate what the Lord is doing, what He's continuing to do, and what He's going to do into the future. And so if you have not pledged and you want to do that, you still can. And I want to encourage you to do that. There's a box up here. You can put it in the offering plate, or you can bring it by our call or email, whatever you want to do uh, this coming week. We would love to hear from you so that we can get a, a complete tally of uh, numbers this week and share that with you next Sunday. Also, with it being Celebration Sunday, it's going to be our first fruits offering. And so we're going to encourage you to make your first gift toward New Day if you have pledged to it. And so it's going to be an exciting, exciting time this next Sunday. But this morning, we're going to begin a new series, and you can see on the screens, we've entitled this series, Thankful. Uh, It's hard to believe that we are already in November, this being the first Sunday of November. And uh, Halloween is behind us, which means Christmas music is all over the radio, and uh, I haven't yet heard one. I guess I haven't been listening very long. But it is actually November, and uh, the holiday season is, is upon us. It's not even quickly upon us. It is absolutely here. Uh, but I love this time of year, don't you? I love this time of year for a lot of reasons. The heat's behind us. The coolness is here. And I, I live for cold temperatures. Uh, I, I just love it. I love the, the changing of the seasons. 
Uh, but really, one of the reasons, perhaps the greatest reason I love this season of the year is because it reminds us to be thankful. It reminds us of what we have been given, that God has been so good to us, and, and really begin to just kind of sit back and process and think through all the many blessings in our lives, the big ones and the small ones. We've all got some big blessings, but we all have a lot of small blessings, and it's good to remember and reflect upon and be appreciative for both. Came across something this week that I thought might be a little funny, but I believe it comes from the perspective of a woman, so just excuse it, man. It's the, let's let the ladies have a laugh this morning. But here's a few things that, might, that you might be thankful for this holiday season. Number one, automatic dishwashers. It's hard to, to find a home that doesn't have one these days, but, but just think about how appreciative you are for automatic dishwashers. They make it possible to get out of the kitchen or to get uh, yeah, out of the kitchen before the family comes in for their after-dinner snacks. And that's kind of where moms live a lot of times, is you're just cleaning up from one meal and you're moving right into the next meal. And that's the way it is at our house. And so thank God for dishwashers. A second thing to be thankful for, husbands who attack small jobs around the house. They usually make them big enough to call in the professionals. That's what Kara says about me. And I'll get tackling the project, and then it gets overwhelming, and i got to call in for, for uh, replacements or uh, help. Thirdly, children who put away their things and clean up after themselves. Aren't you thankful for that? But in this case, the problem with that is the children have to leave with their parents. And so it's not your kids, it's someone else's kids that come over and clean up the mess. And uh, I know at our house, anytime we have guests over and, and f- you know, friends that have children... they destroy upstairs. Our kids' room, they destroy the playroom, and it's like, good night, did y'all just drop a grenade and walk out of the room? I love families that will come over and make their kids help clean up. If that's your family, thank you, we we bless you. If that's not you, then let this be a a, a spanking this morning that you need to help your kids clean up, because it is a blessing to parents. Another thing to be uh, thankful for, gardening. I, I like to garden, I like to be outside. It's a relief when you think about it, to deal with dirt outside the house for a change. I thought that was funny. No one laughed at that, but I thought that was funny. And then smoke alarms. Here's a Thanksgiving one. Smoke alarms. They let you know when the turkey's done. <clears throat> and if that's your house, uh, I'll eat at Cracker Barrel, then come over for dessert this Thanksgiving. But uh, we are grateful for those and so many more. But thankfulness really is a beautiful thing. Look at this quote by Cicero. He said... A thankful heart is not only the greatest virtue, but it's the parent of all other virtues. It's really the, gr- the gratitude of your heart really infects every aspect of our life. So this reminds me of the little boy who was asked to pray for dinner. He bowed his head to pray, and before he began to pray, he looked at the dish, the, the plate that was set in front of him, and then he closed his eyes and prayed this, Lord, I, I don't like the looks of it, but I'll thank you and eat it anyway thankfulness. Gratitude really is the thing that flavors your life. It's the thing that that adds substance to who you are. And so this month, as we prepare for the Thanksgiving holiday, what we're going to do is we're going to take today and the next two Sundays, and we're going to look at this concept of thankfulness, but we're going to do it from a little different vantage point. We're going to look at it in a little different way. I want us to look here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and see how Paul was thankful for the Thessalonians. And we're going to look at how we as Christians, and Paul demonstrates this, how he was thankful for the church, how he was thankful for the gospel, and how he was thankful for the mission. 
And so in this Thanksgiving season, I want us to look at what the blessing is that we get from being a part of the church of Jesus Christ. I don't know if we always think through that and, and realize that and how much of a benefit that is for our lives to know that we're not just going through this Christian life on our own. Thankful that God doesn't call us to Lone Ranger Christian living. But he puts us in a body, he puts us in a family, puts us in a house together. Thankful for the gospel that changes our lives. Because it was evident as we walk through this chapter in the next few weeks, we're going to see that these Thessalonian believers were genuine followers of Jesus Christ. There was evidence of that conversion. There was life transformation that could be seen in their lives. And then thankful for the partnership of being on mission together. I mean, we are Christians that band together as a church. We are Christians that, as a church, band together with other like-minded churches, and we're partnering in the gospel to take the name of Jesus, the message of Jesus, to the world that desperately needs it. And so we are thankful this morning for the church, for the gospel, and for the mission that it calls us to in our lives. This morning, I want to tackle the subject of what it means to be thankful for the church. You've probably heard a preacher say this if you've been in church long enough. You've probably said, uh, there's no perfect church, but if you do find a perfect church, please don't join it. Because the moment you join the church, it's no longer perfect. You heard a preacher say that before? It's true. Number one, there's no perfect churches, and that's because we're made up of people who are still imperfect, though saved and redeemed and, and being sanctified, we're not yet perfected, and so we are an imperfect church. This morning, if you are a guest, perhaps, the very first time you've ever stepped through the doors, let me just settle your hearts and minds this morning. We're a messed up people. Uh, we're more messed up than we know. I think sometimes we get on our high horse and think we're doing all right, but we are a messed up people. We're a broken people that Jesus is putting back together. And so there's no perfect people, but Jesus is a perfect Savior who's putting us back together. Uh, as humans, we struggle with sin. But thank the Lord we've been saved by grace. And though we are imperfect, Jesus is perfecting us. And so we don't see a perfect church in the Bible. But as we look here at this church in Thessalonica, we see a pretty close ideal of what a church ought to look like. Not perfect, they've got their problems, but we see here Paul's affection for this church because they loved Jesus, they loved one another, and they loved the lost world. They hated sin. And so what we're going to see here is a church to be thankful for. So the church here at Thessalonica fits this sort of category. And Paul gives us uh, several instances of this. In fact, three times he thanks the church for who they were and how they had responded to the gospel and to his ministry. Not every church or not every pastor can say that. There's a lot of pastors out there who are, who are hurting because their church doesn't respond to the gospel. Their, his church doesn't respond to his leadership. But Paul here says, you people, I praise God for because you love Jesus, you love the message of Jesus, and you love the messengers of Jesus. Apostle here knew these believers. We look at the book of Acts and we see that it was he and Silas who's going to be addressed here and Timothy who really introduced these people to the gospel and led them to faith in Christ and planted a church there in Thessalonica. He had seen the mighty transformation that had taken place in their lives as they walked away from paganism and, and idolatry and all the things of this world and embraced Jesus with an open heart and open arms. He had heard of the redemptive work that continued to take place in their lives even after he had left. And so Paul here in this letter, most likely writing from the city of Corinth, 
sought to encourage and equip these believers in their faith. And here as he begins this letter, he couldn't help but express his gratitude for the work of God that was so evident in their lives. From this first chapter, we learn how we too, how we can and how we should be thankful for the church. We learn what to be thankful for, and we learn that we should be thankful for the church in general. So today, I want us to look at some characteristics that this church made or had that made it so ideal and such a blessing to the Apostle Paul. Look with me, if you will. Let's just read the first three verses of chapter 1. Paul says this. Paul Silvanus, that's the Roman name for Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mention you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, I pray you take your word through the power of the Holy Spirit encourage us this morning. Lord, I pray that you would equip us as believers. Lord, I pray that you would point out sin. God, I pray that you would speak deep into the recesses of our heart. And I pray that you would bring each and every one of us to a place of gratitude for the church, understanding why we're a part of the church and the benefits that come with it. Holy Spirit, speak mightily to us. Give us ears to hear in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul here address this letter as we just read, to the church of the Thessalonians. He's speaking to a body of believers. He's speaking to the corporate congregation there in Thessalonica. The Greek word that Paul uses, the same word that is used all throughout the New Testament to speak of the church is the word, you've heard it before, ecclesia. It is the word that speaks of the church. It literally means the called out ones. It's combined or a combination of two words. The ek, the preposition for out and, and uh, kaleo, the verb meaning to call. And so they're literally the called out ones. It could also be translated the elect ones. The ones that God has drawn to himself. Paul here was certain that the Thessalonians were among God's elect because he saw evidence of their transformation. Paul's not writing this letter and saying to the church of the Thessalonians because I've seen your name on a roll. He's not saying to the church of the Thessalonians because I I believe you're a follower of Jesus Christ. No, he's saying I've seen evidence that God has called you to himself. Did you know that when a person is a genuine follower of Jesus, there's evidence of his or her conversion? Do you know that? You should know that because that's what the Bible teaches. Having a name on a roll, being in Sunday school most if not all of your life, being baptized, walking an aisle, taking the preacher by the hand, all of the things that we may do and and hold on to as followers of Jesus or churchmen, I should say, they don't mean anything. It all comes down to is there evidence in your life that you're a follower of Jesus Christ? You see, I gave or I made a profession of faith going into my ninth grade year, but I knew for, without a shadow of a doubt for five years I was nothing more than a church member. My name was nothing more than a, mem- a name on a church roll. It wasn't on a heavenly roll because there had been no life change in my heart. In fact, the day that I went home there, May 31st, 1991, somewhere in that neighborhood, I remember before going into the utility room from the garage, we had come home from church, my family and I, I remember pausing and either audibly or in my mind saying, I was looking out through the garage to the road, the house across the road, and I said this, I thought something was supposed to change. I knew as a teenager 
that there was supposed to be a life change, but I knew immediately there was no heart change. I would just simply done a religious act, but nothing on the inside had changed. It wasn't until five years later, at the age of 18, a freshman at the University of Arkansas, that the Word of God pierced my cold, dead heart and brought me to faith and to life. A person who's a genuine follower of Jesus will have evidence of his or her conversion. So Jesus tells us this in Matthew 7. He tells us that we will be able to recognize them by the fruit that's in their lives. And so for Paul, there was no doubt in his mind about these Thessalonian believers in this church for which he was thankful. There was evidence of the conversion in their lives. And so what, Paul was grateful for three reasons, three things that he could see in their life. I'm going to share these with you. They're on your uh, bulletin this morning if you take notes. And then I'm going to come back. I'm going to show you two other things that are not on your bulletin, but I want you to write down this morning. First of all, Paul was grateful for their working faith. Verse 3 talks about, uh, he says, remembering your work of faith. Their faith was a faith at work. It was something that was being pressed out through their lives. The believers here in Thessalonica, they were vibrant workers. They loved the Lord Jesus. They, they, they believed and understood that he had done a great and deep work in their lives. And that great and deep work resulted in that type of work being worked out in the lives of other people as they allowed their lives to rub shoulders with other people. And the gospel was there, and it changed and transformed others. Here's a statement I want you to, to hear this morning. A true saving belief in Jesus Christ will always result in the mighty work of God that produces change in one's nature and disposition. Let me say it again. A true saving belief in Jesus Christ will always result in the mighty work of God that produces change in one's nature and disposition. I'm going to come back and say a lot more about that toward the end of the message, but Again, the idea here is this. When Jesus comes into your life, he never leaves you the same. Paul commends this church. He thanks God because they, this is a people who have a working faith. There was something that was changed in their lives that gave evidence of redemption. So therefore, a work of faith is an action representative of the transforming power of regeneration, that we've been brought from death to life. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, the old has passed away, behold, the new has come. I'm not the person I used to be because of Jesus. Now, do I sin? Is there temptation in my life? Or is there times when I stumble and fall? Absolutely. I'm human. I'm still in the process of being sanctified, being conformed more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. There will be a day in glory when I am perfected but it's not today. But I'm on the road to that because Jesus has changed my life. And hopefully there's evidence of that that people can see. Paul could see it in the Thessalonians. The old had passed. The new had come. We could say it this way. The child of God engages now in holy, righteous deeds to the honor and the glory of God. Paul was confident of that. In the Thessalonians, he saw their relationship with Christ because their faith was producing righteous deeds in their lives. His words here, however, some will look at it and say, 
work of faith. Does this mean that we work for our faith? Does this mean that, that we are, are redeemed, that we come into relationship with Jesus because he sees something good in us? Do I got to go to church X amount of times or, or help enough older ladies across the road? Or what do I need to do to, to earn my salvation? That's not what Paul's saying at all. Paul's not contradicting himself. He very clearly says in Romans 3 and Ephesians 2 and other places that salvation is by grace through faith alone. So what is Paul now here saying? He's basically saying this. I see evidence in the life of the Thessalonians that they have come to Christ because now their faith is working. They didn't work to earn faith. They faithed into God and it's produced good works. James, the half-brother of Jesus in James chapter 2 says it this way. That faith without works is dead, right? And so if you hear, or if you are the person who says, I believe in Jesus, I'm a follower of Jesus, I'm going to heaven when I die, but there's no, there's no evidence, in that li- evidence in your life of that, you need to be weary or leery of the fact that you may not be on the road that leads to heaven. Why? Because your faith is not being pressed out, it's not being worked out. There's no evidence of that in your life. You're simply religious. And if religion's enough to get you into heaven, then why would Jesus call the Pharisees a nothing but a bunch of whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones? Dead, dead men's bones. It's a hard phrase to say. Why would he say that if religion's enough? It's because religion's never enough. I mean, James went on to say there that the demons of hell believe in Jesus and shudder. And so it's not enough just to be religious. It's not enough to just simply believe uh, from, a, from a head standpoint. You've got to come down. It's got to go 18 inches further down into your heart. And it's got to be a conviction where you surrender your life over to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul here, thank God for these Thessalonians who are working their faith out. Our faith as Christians is a working faith. These Thessalonians had turned to Christ from idols. Think about what they've come from. They had turned from self to the Son. And as a result of the grace which they had experienced, they now gave themselves in service to Jesus. Sounds a lot like the demoniac in Mark chapter 5. Remember that story? Jesus says, come across the Sea of Galilee. It's right on the heels of feeding the 5,000. And he gets there on the other side of the, of the sea. And all of a sudden, this demon-possessed man with legions of demons come within him. He's, no one's been able to control him or anything. They hide from this guy. He's a maniac. And he comes down to the Lord Jesus. Jesus rebukes those demons. And all of a sudden, here's a man in his right mind once again. And he wants to follow Jesus. He asked Jesus, Jesus, can I go with you? And the Lord forbid him. He says, no, I don't want you to go with me. I want you to go and tell the people what God has done for you. And the Bible, what does the Bible tell us that he did? He goes into the Decapolis, and he begins to proclaim the good news of Jesus and all that he had done for him. These Thessalonians preached, they discipled, they met the needs of people, all for the glory of God. And Paul was thankful for their faith that worked. Secondly, He thanked the Lord because they had a laboring love. They had a laboring love. True Christians minister motivated by their love for Jesus and for others. If there's any other motivation in your life to serve and to minister to people, it will never last if it's not motivated by the love of God. You can teach Sunday school. You can work in this. I know you all picked up on that, right? He said Sunday school. It still happens. It still happens. Small group, 
You can serve in the nursery. You can be one of the precious preschool workers. You can do anything and everything there is to do in the church. But if you don't have love for Jesus and love for people, you will burn out. I tell you right now, you can pastor a church, but if you don't do it because you love Jesus, because you love the people, it will drive you nuts and you will want to do something else. That's why preachers all the time quit. It's got to be motivated by love. These are the two great commandments. You look in Matthew 22. There Jesus was asked about these, and he says, here's the great commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. On these two hinge or hang all the commandments. Love is part of the fruit of the Spirit, Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 5. And so it's produced as we follow and are led by the Holy Spirit in our life. Christians who minister are motivated by their love for Jesus and for others. The term here translated labor is the word kopas. It denotes arduous and a wearying kind of toil. It's done to the point of exhaustion. This word is much different than the word that's used earlier for work. There, that work, ergon, focuses on the deed itself. Kopas looks at the effort and... and, at the effort expended in accomplishing this particular deed. It's an effort that strains all of one's energies to the maximum level. So what we see here is this selfless love motivates this kind of spiritual effort that you would go to the extreme laboring on behalf of people because you love Jesus and you love the one you're serving. That's why as a small group leader, you ought to do what you do is because you're laboring for them. You're you're giving it your all. You're not just waking up on Sunday morning and flipping through your book and trying to think of some things to say in small group. No, you've prayed for those people all week. You've studied all week. You've ministered to them all week. And now as you come on Sunday, it's just the overflow out of your life because you lovingly labor for the people that you get to serve. Paul thanked God for a church that labored in love for Jesus and for people. Thirdly, he praised God for their enduring hope. Their enduring hope. All Christians have a steadfastness of hope in Jesus Christ. If you're a genuine follower of Jesus, there is something within you that's going to hold you to the ground when the storms of life come raging. The Reformers called it the perseverance of the saints. We as Southern Baptists have taken that terminology and we put it into our own doctrinal statement, the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. We believe that if you're a genuine follower of Jesus Christ, the Bible teaches us that we will persevere to the very end. Does it mean you, may have, you won't have momentary or, or uh, short lapses in your faith and in your enduring abilities, but you will come back? If you're a genuine follower of Jesus Christ, there will be a moment of repentance and restoration in your life. So Paul here, as he looked at these Thessalonians, understanding their situation, he praised God for their steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. term he used here, it conveys the idea of endurance and perseverance. Literally, it denotes the condition of staying under pressure. How much of our life is lived under pressure? Every day. Every day has a new storm. Every day has a, has a new difficulty. Every day has a new challenge. Sometimes those challenges are greater than others. Sometimes they're easier than others. But every day has a new challenge. We're constantly living life in the pressure cooker. But this enduring hope 
that the Thessalonians had was what enabled them to press on. And we looked at the, the book of Hebrews there in chapter 11, the hall of faith. We see that it was the enduring hope that they held in Jesus that enabled them as martyrs to hold on to their faith even to the point of death. It's what pushed Paul forward in the face of impending imprisonment and death in his own ministry and life. It's what enables us today to hold fast to our faith in the face of a, the death of a loved one. When your loved one, your mom, your dad, your spouse, your child, your grandma, your grandpa, a good friend, when they die tragically and suddenly it rips your heart out and sometimes you're left just wondering, why in the world did this happen? Why did God let this happen? And yeah, sure, you may have a momentary lapse in that where you're just mad at God, but you will come back. I'm grateful that today, 25 years after my dad's passing, I wasn't a believer back then, but I believed in God. I, I believed the Bible, at least. I wasn't in relationship with Jesus, but God's been able to sustain me where I never have had an ounce of bitterness toward that tragedy. In fact, I look at that and I see how God has worked all things to the good and the glory of himself and of my life and my family. And so, life is difficult. And our enduring hope enables us to press on. When those test results come in from the doctor and they reveal you have cancer and maybe even terminal cancer, that's what holds your feet to the ground. And, and you look to Jesus a little bit more and, and your relationship with him is a little bit more sweeter because death is impending upon your life. But you're not wavering. You're not moved and tossed about because of the new news. You understand that it's not new news to Jesus. He knew it was going to happen before the foundation of the earth was ever laid holds you to the ground. It helps you to endure when you get that notice from your employer that you've now been cut loose. The company's downsizing and you weren't one of the ones that made the cut and you lost the job. You got to go home and tell your wife. You got to go home and tell your husband. You got to go home and tell your kids that you no longer have the income. We're going to have to make some cutbacks. We don't know what the next few months and years are going to look like, but we do have hope in Jesus because we have an enduring hope that's not just good today, but it's good for all of eternity. It's what in our culture that, that, that belittles us as Christians for having biblical convictions and what holds us to the ground. And we say, I will stand on the word of God despite what this culture says. We're going to stand rock solid and we're going to believe Jesus. We're going to believe his word. Even when we're looked at and told we're fools and idiots, we will believe the book because Jesus has given it to us. That is an enduring hope that these Thessalonians had. I think I'm preaching a whole lot better than you're responding this morning. <clears throat> I don't know if you've noticed, but in this passage we see a trio of words that Paul uses quite often. Faith, hope, and love. 1 Corinthians 13, 13. Uh, he says it again in 1 Thessalonians 5, 8, Colossians 1, 5. He uses this often. But here, it's not the focal point of verse 3. Grammatically, and I'm not much of a Greek gramma, grammar uh, star by the stre any stretch of the ima imagination, but grammatically, faith, hope, and love here are presented as what we might refer to as a subjective Genitive. I know that means absolutely nothing to you this morning. But what it means to grammar, Greek grammar, is that in this sentence, these words are used to identify that which motivates and produces Christian actions. You see, he says you have a working faith 
Your faith is what motivates your work. You have a laboring love. It's the love for Jesus and people that motivates you to love or, or to labor on behalf of them. You have a hope that endures because your hope is in Jesus. It's what motivates you to be steadfast and to hold on to Jesus when everything around you is crumbling. So why was Paul so thankful for this Thessalonian church? I believe Paul was thankful because he saw that faith produced good works. He saw that love motivated them to serve others. And he saw that their hope in Jesus enabled them to stand firm regardless of their circumstances. And as a pastor, it gives me nothing, there's nothing that gives me greater joy than to see followers of Jesus, when the rugs pulled out from underneath them, they don't fall. And they keep serving because they have faith. They keep loving because... They have faith and they love Jesus. And they keep having hope because their hope is not in their circumstances. Their hope is in their Christ. And Paul here was also thankful for a few other reasons. So I want you to write these down. And I'm going to expand on them if I have time. What did these characteristics do for the church? Working faith, laboring love, and enduring hope. What do they do for the church today? What did they do for the church back then? A couple things that I think it's important that we hear this morning. Number one, these characteristics are an example that motivates. They are an example that motivates. See, as the other Christians in the church looked around and they saw people with a working faith and a laboring love and an enduring hope, it was an example that motivated them in their Christian walk. You see, there's nothing quite like seeing an example of what something is supposed to look like. It's now holiday season, right? So what does that mean for most people? You're going shopping. You're going to the stores. You're looking for the latest sales. You want to know what, where the good deals are. But when you get there, especially when it comes to clothes, you want to know what it's going to look like when it's put on. I want that because I don't want to get a pair of pants that I can't get pulled up over my knees because everybody wears skinny jeans these days, and I just refuse to wear skinny jeans. I, I yet to understand how you can even get them on without butter and Crisco oil. But an example is extremely helpful. Paul here, I believe, thanked the Lord for the work being done in the Thessalonian church because he knew as a, as a pastor, as, as a church planner, as a follower of Jesus and a discipler, he knew that due to the life transformation that had taken place in them, new and younger believers could look at that transformation, look at their walk with Jesus, and be encouraged in their own faith. See, their example would spur on greater sanctification in the lives of other people. It would lead to a greater sense of surrender in their lives. And so what you see is this perpetual discipleship taking place in the life of this church. Today, we need to be thankful for the church. Not because we get to come in here on Sunday and you kind of just sit there and you're a spectator and you listen and you sing, but you're not really singing to the Lord. Let's be honest this morning. A lot of times when we're quote-unquote worshiping, we're just going through the motions. Right? We're just singing because we're supposed to sing. We're just listening because we're just supposed to listen. But here's what the church really is for. It's to disciple you in your life. We ought to be able to come to church and be a part of the church outside of these four walls for the mere purpose of seeing a godlier example of how I should live my life, how I should lead my family, and be motivated to be Christ-like. You know, if we will do that and we come in here on Sundays, this will be a party and a celebration, rather sometimes a funeral. The Christian life 
is about the church because the church is about Jesus. And God uses the church to motivate us as an example to spur one another on to greater sanctification and surrender. We need to see examples of what our lives ought to be like as a Christ follower. You look at, uh, I think it's Titus, it's either Timothy or Titus, it's one of those pastoral epistles, and Paul says the younger men, or the older men are to teach the younger men, and the older women are to teach the younger women. You remember that passage? I may be getting it backwards or whatever, but that's the gist of it. It's this. It's not older in age necessarily, it's older in maturity. You see, you can have an 18-year-old teenage boy who's rock solid in his faith. He's on fire for the Lord Jesus Christ. He's only been saved three years. But he could be further down the line from a maturity standpoint when it comes to Christian faith than the person who's 68 who's been a follower of Jesus for 40 years because he's never done anything with that faith other than pray a prayer. He comes to church and that's kind of the, the piece of religion he gets on a weekly basis. It's not about how old I am or whatever. It's about how far I am along in the journey with Jesus and the person who's further along in the journey with Jesus, even if it's a step further, ought to be reaching back and pouring into the life of the person who's behind him or her. It's an example that motivates us, spurs us on in our Christian lives and development. Paul saw that in these Thessalonians. This is what discipleship's all about. Discipleship's not coming and setting and being instructed. Maybe that's part of it from time to time. But discipleship is iron on iron, sharpening each other. It's getting together. It's, it's sharing our hurts and our difficulties and our shortcomings and, and all the, the mess in our life. It's being open and honest and it's being constructive in our criticism. It's all of those things to, to build and to mold and to shape greater and a godlier Christian, done all in the power of the Spirit. So it's not just about instruction in what the Word says. It's more about how we should live. It's about a visual model of biblical truth being fleshed and pressed out in the lives of believers. It's seeing a brother or sister respond to adversity like being laid off at work with hope and confidence in Jesus. You see, when those things happen to you, when the storms begin to erode out from underneath you, the foundation you've been standing on and you still hold on to your faith, no matter what, people are watching you say, you know what, I can be rock solid in my faith too. If they can do it, I can do it. I want to be like so-and-so. It's an example that motivates. Secondly, these characteristics, they are a rebuke that corrects. They are a rebuke that corrects. Well, Pastor, that's kind of a hard work, a rebuke. No one likes to be rebuked. No, we don't like to be rebuked, but it sure is helpful, is it not? I think sometimes the rebuke that we receive, some of, I'm going to be careful of my words here because I don't want to give you the wrong impression. I believe sometimes one of the greatest ways God uses a rebuke is not necessarily a spoken word to us. It's just you see someone that contrasts your life 
You see their holiness. You see their intimacy with God. You see their, their, their faithfulness. You see their discipline and their commitment to Christ and his church. And then you look at yourself and you're like, good night. I'm not even close. I, I, I am like Paul would say, I am the worst of the worst, the sinner of all sinners. And it spurs you back to correct your life. It says, I'm not where I need to be. Something we need to understand as Jesus followers is it's not enough to simply be religious. I said it earlier, religion is never enough. It's never been enough. Wasn't enough for the Pharisees. Wasn't enough for the people of Israel. I mean, God, he, he displaced his people, but they were religious, always religious. They were chasing the wrong gods, but they were religious. They were devout. They, they were trying hard, pressing on, doing everything they needed to be to be religious, but it was never enough. It's not enough for us today to simply go to church. I mean, if it was enough, then we would just have cards and you could just punch it and turn around and leave. We're not installing that, by the way. I mean, if you're kind of hoping, wow, that's a great idea, Pastor, be great. I'll just kind of come in, throw a few dollars in the plate and, and be done. We're not doing that because that's not what it's about. It's not enough to get a slice of Jesus. And yet, there are people in the... In the days of the New Testament, just like there are people today who are satisfied with a form of godliness but deny its power. And so we must never forget a great truth. Here's something I want to say in a little different way than I said earlier. No change, no Christ. It goes back to life transformation. If Jesus has never transformed your life, you're not a follower of Jesus. If people, and even yourself, you can't look at your life and say, there has been a stark contrast in the way I live today than the day I lived before I made my profession of faith. If you can't say that with complete honesty, you're not a child of God. You're like I was as a teenager trying hard to be religious. I had two quiet times a day. I went to a Christian high school. I graduated high school. I immediately started teaching seventh grade Sunday school. I mean, I was religious as religious could be. It never changed my heart. I was a miserable wreck because the whole time I knew I was lost. That's the worst place to be. When you know and the Holy Spirit's just pressing on your life every single day, you open the Word of God, and there it is, just screaming out to you. That's the most miserable place to be, is to have the, the, the knowledge that way you're living is wrong. The most freeing thing is to come to a place of faith and repentance. No Christ, there's been no change. According to Paul here, when an individual comes into relationship with Jesus, if you look at 2 Corinthians 5, 17, he or she is immediately changed. The old passes, behold, the new comes. And so death is brought to life. So what does this mean for the church? A church walking with Christ in sanctification is a rebuke to the ones who are walking in sin. That's where we're getting to this. So as we look at these characteristics, a working faith, a laboring love, an enduring hope, these are testimonies of a faith family that is pressing out through their lives the life of Jesus Christ, and it is an extremely awesome example that motivates Christians to greater faithfulness. It's an example that motivates lost people to want to get in on what they have. But it's also a rebuke that hopefully will lead Christians to repentance and faith, and also lost people to repentance and faith because they see something that's different than they are. A church that's walking in sanctification is a rebuke to those who are walking in sin. Let me bring it down a little bit further. A person pursuing sin, therefore, 
has no desire to be around a person who's pursuing Christ. Here's what the devil wants to do in your life. He wants to isolate you. God always brings us into community. He always brings us into fellowship with himself and with other believers. The enemy always wants to isolate you and get you by yourself. Anybody ever watch documentaries, you know, like wildlife documentaries? Several years ago, there was one, um, Planet Earth or something like that. It was on the Discovery Channel. I remember they had this view, and I might have shared this before. They had some sort of drone shot, and they were watching these hyenas coming in and attacking some gazelles or some sort of deer or antelopes. And, and so these hyenas, they came in, and they began to force the, the herd to move in one direction. And then other hyenas would come in from the side. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to peel off the smaller and weaker animals, get them isolated so they can kill them, right? What do you think the enemy wants to do in your life? He wants to get you by yourself. He wants to thank you that no one cares, no one knows, or no one needs to know, and he's got, he's got you trapped. And so a person who's buying into that wants nothing to do with the person who's walking with Jesus for two reasons. You're in the trap with the enemy, and number two, it makes you extremely uncomfortable to be around a person who's walking with the Lord. just makes you uncomfortable because you know it, it brings you under conviction. It's a slap in your spiritual face. It's a rebuke to you. And you know you're wrong. You know your life is not right. You know you should repent of sin. You know you should confess that sin. You know you should return in faith to the Lord Jesus. But for whatever reason, there's this struggle going on in your life. And so what many people do is they will, they will pull out of church. They'll pull out of friendships. They'll pull out of relationships that have been lifelong because they would rather be in their sin than to be with Jesus and with God's people. Rather than walk in holiness, they would rather walk in sinfulness. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 6.14 that fellowship has no, or light has no fellowship with darkness. So, it may make you uncomfortable to be around a person because it exposes your sin. But you need to realize that no matter how well you try to fake it, how well you try to fake your spirituality, you're always exposed. You may fake it well enough to fake the church. By and large, you probably are not faking it with your family. You're probably not faking it too well with your good friends. You can fake me all day long unless you're really, really close to me because, you know, distance. If we're not walking really, really close together in a strong friendship, I'm not going to know and you're not going to, or I'm not going to know what's going on in your life unless you let me know. So you can fake it for a while. But you can't fake it with your family. You probably can't fake it with your close friends. And you for sure can't fake it with the Lord. He knows what's going on in your life. And so this morning, Paul's thankful for this church because he saw these characteristics. And, and they were an encouragement to those who were seeking Jesus. But also, we need to understand, they were a rebuke to those who were not walking with Jesus. So I want to encourage you, if that's where you are this morning, quit trying to fake it. Here's what you're going to be tempted with this morning after this message. I, I really didn't mean to be this <clears throat> with y'all this morning. I, I really didn't. I guess y'all needed it. <laughs> Here's what some of you are going to be tempted to do. I ain't going back to that church. I for sure ain't getting close to that pastor. He's a judgmental dude, man. He just looks down. No. The enemy's going to tell you those things. You know what the Spirit of God's going to tell you? You need to listen. Here's another opportunity for you to repent 
of your sin. Here's another opportunity for you to get right. Here's another opportunity for you to be clean. Here's another opportunity for you to be free. Because sin is so entrapping upon your life. It's so heavy and weighs you down. And you feel like nothing can get you out from underneath it. You want to get out, but you can't get out from underneath it. And you know there's hope out there. You can see the light out from underneath this weight. You know you need that. You know you kind of want that. But you still want to be in the sin. And one of the reasons that keeps you there is because you're embarrassed of what others will say. Let me just tell you some truth here. If people who are walking in the power of the Spirit of God see you come in brokenness and in confession and with repentance, they will rejoice, praise the Lord Jesus Christ, and they will stoop down to help you up. If they ever say anything other than that, they're not walking in the power of God. So we have response times every Sunday morning. And this is what I believe the enemy is whispering in a lot of our ears. Man, you don't need to go down there. You can sit right here. If you go down there, everybody's going to know. They're going to speculate. What's going on in their life? What's going on in that family? Man, if that husband and wife come down to pray, I bet he's beating her. He may not go to that stream. But that's what the enemy is telling some of you guys. Uh, Let me speak to men specifically for just a second. Man, I'm going long. Men, you need to step it up and, and be the spiritual leader of your home. You just need to. You need to be godly. People are watching you. Your family's watching you. And so it doesn't matter what's going on in your life. It doesn't matter. No one else has to know. If the Lord says respond, respond in whatever way he says. If that means you go out on the street with a big flag and you say, I'm a sinner, but I'm being forgiven, bless God, go do it. I don't think he'll say that, but if he does, be obedient. This mansy, pansy, weak Christian stuff that we have succumbed ourselves to here in America needs to go out the window. We need to be real about it. We need to be followers of Jesus that Paul could look at us and say, man, I I see a working faith in his life. I see laboring love in that woman. That senior adult couple, man, they've been through the ringers, but there's enduring hope in them. He got the report last week Stage four pancreatic cancer, not shaking his faith one bit. He understands he's going to be glorified in just a little bit. He's moving on up, as the song used to say. There's steadfastness of hope. Not in their ability, not in their financial stability, not in their pedigree, their family background. No, Paul says, I thank God when I remember your steadfast hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you thankful for that this morning? Are you motivated and encouraged by that example? Maybe this morning, it's a Holy Spirit gentle slap of rebuke. If that's the case, you respond in faith and repentance. Lord Jesus, you were good to us as we've sang this morning. You were so, so good to us. God, the greatest fear that most people have is that our sins be exposed. That the closet door of our life is flung open and the skeletons come piling out. That's the greatest fear. But Lord, if we understand our Bibles correctly, 
first of all, it's always exposed before you. We lie naked and bare before you. There's nothing that we could hide from the all-seeing God. Lord, we also learn from your word that when our sins are confessed, forgiveness is available. Lord, this morning, our plan is not to have an open confession mic time. It's not about that this morning. But Lord, confession may need to happen between individual and the Lord Jesus. Confession may need to happen between husband and wife and the Lord Jesus. Parent and child, friend to friend, Christian brother to Christian brother. God, there's no forgiveness if there's no confession. There's no forgiveness if there's not genuine repentance. God, we thank you this morning for the blood that was shed upon the cross that when confession and repentance are made through the power and the leading of the Holy Spirit, forgiveness has been applied. And I pray this morning that would be the case all over this room. Today would be the beginning of a new day in homes, relationships, even in the life of our church corporately. We're thankful, Lord, for the church. God, we understand that sometimes, many times perhaps, we don't act the way we should act to one another. We don't say the things we should say to one another. We get cross, we get mean, we get bent out of shape. We act like family because that's what we are. We take advantage of one another. We don't appreciate one another. But God, this morning, we're thankful for the church. For the gentle rebuke the church is at times to us as individuals. Lord, we're also thankful for the incredible example motivates us to follow Jesus a little closer. We move into a time of response. I pray, Holy Spirit, oh, I pray that we would respond this morning. God, give us ears that hear and a heart that says yes.